Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. It'll be this new congressional leadership's first test to try and avoid a government shutdown. As usual, the ones who will be doing most of the watching will be federal contractors. There's a new initiative from the White House, though, that will give them plenty to keep busy while the waiting game ensues. To get a pulse check on the contracting industry, we welcome David Berteau, president and CEO of the Professional Services Council. David, glad to have you back. Thank you, Eric, for having me on. Of course, of course. So here we go again with a possible government shutdown looming over the horizon. What is it that you are telling folks to keep an eye on as the back and forth continues? Well, the House, of course, has introduced a continuing resolution draft bill, and it's rather unusual because it has what they call the laddered approach, right? Some agencies will face a shutdown again in January, and others will have a CR that extends all the way to February. It's unusual largely untested. There was a a little experiment with this back in the George H.W. Bush administration. But it is true that we've got the bill on the floor. And other than that, it's a fairly clean bill. What we have to watch for, of course, is do they have the votes to pass this in the House? Do they have the votes to pass this in the Senate? And will the president sign it? So those are the three elements. We can dig in each one of them. By all means, yeah, let's go digging right now. Uh, what, What are the chances you think that'll happen? So as this plays out on Tuesday, the House is back in session and we'll be able to know by the end of the day, I think, whether the votes are there to pass this bill. There are a number of House Republicans who have said they will not vote for a CR of any way, shape or form. More than likely, it means that uh, Speaker Johnson will need some Democratic votes. And so we're going to watch to see whether those votes materialize. The other thing we're going to watch for, last time this happened, back on September 30th, um, you know, Speaker McCarthy got a relatively clean CR passed and it needed Democratic votes, and it cost him the speakership. No indication that that same dynamic is inevitable this time, but it's certainly something that we need to watch for. Then we need to watch and see what happens on the Senate side, where they would love to have a different bill. They've got two options, really. They can pass the bill that the House passes, assuming the House passes it, in which case they send it on to the president, or they can modify and send it back to the House. Don't know which they're going to do. We should be able to see that by Wednesday or maybe Thursday. Keep in mind, Friday midnight is the deadline. And then, of course, the question of the White House. The White House uh, press secretary has indicated a potential for veto. Eric, it's useful to remember, although it's been a long time since it happened. We can get into a shutdown by Congress not passing a CR, which does happen, or we can get into a shutdown with the president vetoing the bill that the House passes. Hadn't happened in a while, but the long shutdown that we had back in 1995 was, in fact, precipitated by a White House presidential veto, not Congress failing to act. So we're going to have to see what the White House both says and ultimately what it does. I was going to say, you know, even if it is a continuing resolution, there's still a lot of uncertainty in said CRs usually because things change and sometimes the agencies aren't aware of what exactly they have the funding for. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? Well, as we talk to the agencies and as our member companies, I mean, one of the things that we suggest to our member companies is that they have robust discussions with their programs in advance of a possible shutdown. And they also do some internal planning. One of the most important things for companies to plan for is what will they do independent of what the government does? 
the ability to pay people, the ability to access funds in case you're not going to get your invoices paid. Make sure all your invoices are paid and on time. Make sure you've communicated with your programs and you know who to contact in the event of a shutdown because a lot of people get sent home and you're not allowed to communicate with them. So you need to know who's going to be there for you to talk to. Agencies are restricted by the White House in many cases, in most cases in preparation for a shutdown, in terms of how much they can say and when. And for many programs, the program offices, the contract managers and administrators will not know if they're being furloughed under a shutdown or if they'll be required to work without pay. They won't know that until the morning after the shutdown starts. That makes it hard for both programs and contractors to plan ahead of time. Keep in mind also, contractors are the ones who take the first hit, right? So civilian employees won't get their first paycheck, but in the case of contractors, they won't get invoices paid on the first day of the shutdown because most of the time that is an immediate effect. So the effect hits contractors sooner. It's also true that the effects aren't reimbursed. So if a stop work order is issued and workers are laid off, they're not going to get back pay, unlike the federal government employees who automatically will get back pay once it comes into play. So all of those are factors that come into play as we begin to think about what happens if there is a shutdown. We're speaking with David Berto. He is the president and CEO of the Professional Services Council. So as maybe a way to help contractors keep their mind off of a possible shutdown, the White House announced the Better Contracting Initiative late last week. I imagine you have some thoughts on that. We do, of course. So we're very much in favor of better contracting. The question is, uh, what does this initiative have in it and what's it likely to do? And it's interesting, the administration laid out uh, four prongs in its fact sheet that they issued publicly. I think, you know, there's some elements of positivity in, in each of those prongs. The first prong, for instance, talks about making sure that there's a common database. And we think it makes great sense for agencies to share data. In fact, probably the most important thing is to make sure we standardize data definitions first, because sharing data that doesn't have common data definitions could actually end up being confusing and misleading. Cost data for contractors, uh, common cost data, that may be fairly easy for common products, you know, paper, printers, even necessarily commercial software and that sort of thing. But it's really hard for services because the question of what's common is very, very hard to define especially if, as the White House indicates in announcing this initiative, they focus on outcomes rather than input. So there's a lot of unanswered questions about protecting companies from the government misusing or misapplying their cost data or even misunderstanding what's in it. Those questions need to be resolved as we go forward on that first prong. Gotcha. Okay. And so what were involved in the other prongs of the initiative? Well, again, uh, it's easy to agree on the overarching principle. The second prong says agencies shouldn't be paying more than they need to. That's absolutely true. But there are a lot of reasons why one agency might not be procuring the same services as another. And those differences, uh, I think, will require more thought and analysis than the, than the fact sheet acknowledges before we can compare those prices and make sure that the government doesn't pay more uh, than it should for what it needs. And then the third prong, boy, again, talk about agree right up front, getting contracts right the first time. Well, who would argue for getting contracts wrong the first time? So this reminds me, of course, of, of a dynamic where the government oftentimes is driving the solicitation But then as the work is performed, the actual capabilities required of the individuals performing that work requires more senior personnel, more experienced personnel, better trained personnel, and higher rates. So you get a gap between what it takes for a company to win a contract and what it takes to perform it. That's the government's fault. 
right? If you write a solicitation that's different than what the work will be performed under, uh, then you're going to not get it right the first time. So obviously we applaud that implementation of this prong though is not going to be easy for a lot of services contracts. And then the last prong is really about how the government buys and, and whether or not contractors are going to create essentially a, a monopoly on the on the front end. It's really important to recognize that a mentality that looks at too much consolidation because of many buyers and only a few sellers is an appropriate application of antitrust, et cetera, for the broader commercial economy. But in the government's case, what you really have is very many sellers and only one buyer. And that's a fundamentally different dynamic. And as this prong is implemented, we would like to remind the government that if they only buy enough for a few sellers, that's not really the fault of the companies. That's really, if the government's not buying enough to keep a lot of companies in business, they're going to have to live with the consequences of not having enough competition. So those are the way we think about those four prongs. We look forward to working with the administration as they begin to move out on these two. Yeah, finishing up here, I wanted to gauge your opinion on whether or not there will be continued improvements building upon those prongs in this initiative. The overarching approach of the Better Contracting Initiative seems to be aimed at better outcomes, and that we certainly applaud. It is, however, structured in such a way that a lot of the elements will focus on inputs rather than outcomes. So bridging that gap will be the first and probably most important piece. The last thing I would note, though, is, you know, it's November and there's an election a year from now. My experience, Eric, is that in an administration in the fourth year of a four year term, there's actually a lot you can get done if you focus on what you've already laid the groundwork for and you build out on that and implement those going forward. So, again, the intent of these is something that we agree with. The implementation will be the challenge and we look forward to working with the administration on those as all of our PSC members will benefit from an appropriate implementation of these prongs. David Berteau is president and CEO of the Professional Services Council. David, as always, thank you very much. Thank you, Eric. It's a great pleasure and happy Thanksgiving. <laughs> Same to you. And you can find this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at How do we accomplish our mission through our people? And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected. 
and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective. We get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance and I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, 
This is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so I've had to do my own self-reflection on on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, Makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions. And that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion. And then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision and it didn't go as I had hoped and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know in my mind didn't know what they were talking about and so um, in reflection on that I realize and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions I realize that was a mistake that it actually is really important to listen especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce, because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture 
because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. 
your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.